Christian Church. Join us Sunday mornings at either 9 or 10.30 a.m. How many of you in this room enjoy going to meetings? Yeah, that's kind of what I thought. Because <laughs> I, I was just going to kind of do that to show you, you know, you wouldn't be the only one, but I don't. I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not a meeting person, all right? Uh, maybe your work involves that you go to a lot of meetings. My work involves that I go to several meetings. It's just, it's just kind of the way it happens. I will tell you this about meetings. The meeting better have a purpose, Okay, if you're meeting without a purpose, it's not going to work too well. It's not going to work out very well, all right? Now, let me ask you this. Maybe you've been in this kind of position before. If not, just imagine it for a second. Let's say that you do, your job requires you to go to a tremendous amount of meetings. And, and you go to that first meeting without the boss, the boss, the CEO, whatever, retires, okay? So the one that for many, many years led the meeting is now gone, okay? How is that going to change things? Because typically, and not all the, all the time is it quote-unquote the boss, but typically at these meetings there's one person who kind of drives the meeting, who kind of keeps the agenda going, kind of keeps things rolling here, okay? Okay. Um, and, and the reason for that is, as we've already just, it's become very clear, most people would rather be somewhere else than in that meeting. So there needs to be somebody who's driving that meeting and keeping that going. Let me tell you something. When it comes to meetings and it comes to someone conducting a meeting, there has never been a meeting driver like Jesus Christ. Okay? Um, for one thing, he was a genius. All right? I mean, he was creative, he was thought-provoking, he was an out-of-the-box thinker, um, he genuinely cared for the participants just as much, if not more, than the agenda of the meeting. Okay, now for a moment, think about, if, if, that's, if that's the boss, if your boss was like that, and you could describe your boss in that way, think about that first meeting without a boss like that. Now, as we found out last week as we began this journey through the book of Acts, Jesus is gone now. Physically, he's gone. We looked at that last week, first part of chapter 1. He ascended into heaven. A cloud received him from their sight. They could not see him any longer. The apostles are looking up to the sky. Angels show up and say, what are you looking at the sky for? Go back to Jerusalem and wait there. So that's exactly what the apostles do. They follow instructions and they return to Jerusalem. As we look at this passage today, we'll see they not only return to Jerusalem, they return to a specific place in Jerusalem called the upper room. Now this very well could be the upper room where Jesus shared with his, his apostles, his 12 disciples, before his death, his arrest and his death on the cross. Now, the author of Acts, as we looked at last week, is, is a doctor by the name of Luke. He also is the author of one of the Gospels, again, by his name, Luke. And he is the detail guy. The, you'll hear me say this a number of times throughout this journey through Acts. He's the detail doctor, all right? I mean, he, he puts the details in, and he lets us know, it's kind of nice, exactly who's at this meeting. So let's look at that. We're going to begin in Acts 1, 
verse 12, and this is what it says. It says, they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. That's the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they entered the city, they went to the upper room where they were staying. Now, there's something here that I just want to mention just very, very quickly. They go from the Mount of Olives, which is a place near the end of Jesus' life before the cross. They spent quite a significant amount of time here. It's close to Bethany. It's not very far from Jerusalem. So they go from a place where they spent significant time with Jesus. This time they spent with Jesus ended with him him basically like the helium balloon, just like going, leaving, going into heaven in that way. And they go back to quite possibly the upper room where they also spent a tremendous amount of time with Jesus. And I don't hardly blame them here. I mean, they're just kind of hanging on to these places. More specifically, they're kind of hanging on to the person of Jesus. And they're probably just a little bit lost. Verse 13 again. When they went, had entered the city, they went to the upper room where they were staying. That is, and here we get the list, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. Okay, we look at that list. Now before we dive into the rest of the people there, we look at the list of the disciples, those closest followers of Jesus. And looking back and knowing what has happened, we know there is one missing, right? When we get Jesus' disciples named in the Gospels, there's 12 of them and there's two Judases, all right? And one of those Judas guys is gone. All right. I want you not to overlook the fact that Judas is gone, but none of the other 12 are gone. Okay? Jesus has has left the building, if you will. I mean, he's left the world physically, all right? And, and we have these 11 disciples, and they don't leave. They do exactly what they're told. They go back to Jerusalem. They go to the upper room. It reminds me of this. When, when there are some of Jesus' followers who are leaving years before this, that Jesus turns to his closest followers, and he says to them, you're not going to go too, are you? Are you going to leave me? You remember what Peter says to Jesus? He says, Lord, to whom will we go? You hold the words of life. So we see these, and that's something we should not overlook. Jesus chose well. These, these 11 guys could scatter like the wind, but they don't. They stay together. And not only that, it says with one mind they were praying. Now let me tell you something about these apostles to this point. There are very few times you could look at the way they conducted themselves even in the presence of Jesus and say they were unified. (laughs) They were always like, well, I'm greater than you. I'm greater than you. Well, let's do these things this way. Well, let's do it that way. I mean, they were very rarely unified. The only thing that seemed to unify them, they were even very different even in their interests and their personalities. It was Jesus who unified them, but now Jesus is gone. And even then... They are still with one mind in prayer. They learned something from Jesus. 
You look at Jesus when he conducted his life and his ministry here, and you read through that, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll see anytime there's something big on the horizon, something big coming, Jesus gets away for a little while, and he prays, and he prays, and he prays. It's interesting to me that it took Jesus leaving this world to finally unify these guys. With one mind, they are praying. They are finally all together. But the apostles weren't alone. Jesus' family was there. His mother was there. His brothers were there. Let me tell you something about Jesus' brothers. They weren't the biggest fans of Jesus before the death and resurrection. They weren't. But seeing Jesus raised from the dead changed them. This is probably, James and Jude were probably a part of this, who are not only Jesus' brothers, who would later become followers of his, they also just happened to be authors of our New Testament. Yes. Um, but it tells us that there were others present as well. There were other men, there were other women. Um, Luke, because he's the detail guy, he tells us there were approximately uh, 120 in all. In verse, in verse uh, 15, as we'll see here in just a second, he says that there were around 120 people or persons, is probably what your version will read. You know what the literal word in the Greek is? Names. Names. I mean, these were people. J- Luke heard about these people. He knew these people. And yes, they had names. It wasn't just a collection of people. It was a collection of names because these, these people were represented All right, so that's something for us to understand. As we've already talked about, when you put a meeting together, you do not call a meeting without a task or a proposal. All right, anytime, if you're going to put a meeting together, there better be something worth talking about, or you better have some really good food, (laughs) one or the other, okay? The best meetings, you got both, something to talk about and really, really good food. Okay, so... What you got going on here is you've got this meeting taking place and it's Peter who gets the ball rolling. So let's take a look at it. Verse 15. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons, as I said, names, was there together. And this is what he said. Verse 16. Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Guys, what do we we do with Judas Iscariot? I mean, really. This guy spent upwards of two years with Jesus. He was one of the closest. He was one of the 12. He was one of the one out of all of these people. And there were a lot of people who wanted to follow Jesus. And he picked 12 from this group to be within his inner circle. And I know we, we have probably wanted us, why Judas? Why Judas? People have speculated and debated about Judas and the role he played for nearly 2,000 years, folks. Why did Jesus choose a traitor? Was Judas always bad? What about this one? Did Judas have a choice in this? Or was he just destined to do this? Let me tell you something. I have looked at these questions for a long time. I've heard the arguments on all sides of these questions. And I can tell you something. All we can know for certain is this. God's will 
is always going to be done. That's just the way it is. And let me tell you something else. If it hadn't have been Judas who jumped into that role, it would have been somebody else. Jesus was going to be betrayed. And what I'd like you to remember is what the apostles said when Jesus let them know that somebody in that group, and that group wasn't 120, that group was 13, including Jesus. We're talking about the inner circle. It was in that same upper room that Jesus looked at those 12 men and he said, one of you, one of you is going to betray me. Do you know, how the, do you know what the apostles said? These closest followers of Jesus. I know what you would think they would say. Well, who is it? That's not really what they said. You know what they said? It's not me, is it? (laughs) That's a lot different than who is it? What it tells me is there's weakness that resides in the hearts of mankind sometimes, you know? And guys, if it wasn't going to be Judas, he would have been somebody else. You see, God's will is always done. Okay, now we're, this is hindsight 2020 though. They're talking about about Judas now and the role in which he played and what's going to happen with that role now. Before we get Peter's take on the treachery of Judas, uh, we get a little bit of detail from Luke. Like I said, he's the detailed doctor and we get a little bit more detail about Judas and let me tell you, it ain't pretty, (laughs) okay? So, so let's just take a look at it. Most likely in your version of the Bible, this will be in parentheses or something along that lines. That means Luke kind of inserts a little more information into the account. And this is what he says. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness. Now one thought, because there's people who will take that and run with it. It's like, well wait a second, I thought Judas threw the money down at the feet of the of the of the Sanhedrin, the, the chief priests, and, and went out and hung himself. How could if he bought a field? Well, if you remember, that was blood money. They could not take that money and put it into the treasury of the temple at that point. And that money had somebody's name on it. Whose name? Judas. So they went with that money and purchased a field. So in reality, it was Judas who purchased that field, even though he wasn't the one who actually signed the contract. So let's look at that again. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness and falling headlong he burst open in the middle and all his intestines gushed out. You can thank Dr. Luke for that, okay? We just had to have that detail. And then it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in their own language that field was called Halkadama. That is field of blood. So we get a little bit more detail here. And, and let me tell you something. Just like Jesus used specific scripture in regard to the role that, that Judas fulfilled. And he used scripture from the 41st Psalm. Peter follows that lead. Look at verse 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms. Let his homestead be made desolate. And let no one dwell in it. And let another man take his office. 
Peter draws from the 69th Psalm and the 109th Psalm. And from that, he comes to the conclusion that there needs to be a replacement for Judas. And this is kind of the group's decision here, as we'll see in the first part of verse 21. Therefore, it was necessary that of the men who had accompanied us and all the time that Jesus went in and out among us. Okay, so what we see here in verse 21 is we see all the disciples agree with Peter that they need to replace Judas. And we see the very first step in this. Whoever they picked had to have been with Jesus like a long time. Right, So it says there, they had been with him all the time, the end of verse 21, that Jesus, the Lord Jesus went out in and out among us. Then verse 22, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So there we see the qualifications for who they are going to choose. Remember, there's 120 people in this, in this upper room, okay? So we got a lot of people here, and from amongst those people, they need to choose someone to take Judas's place. And that person had to have been with Jesus for a long, long time and seen all the things that had taken place. They had to have seen Jesus after he was crucified, buried, and raised. They needed to see him resurrected. This is important because it's upon the foundation of the witness of these men that the church was going to be built. So these are the stipulations or the qualifications for these guys. And look at verse 23. Two people fit this role. So they put forward two men. Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And I know what you're thinking. Joseph Barsabbas, Justice? I mean, is that like his first, middle, and last name? I mean, because we usually don't see that. The other, poor Matthias, he just had one name, all right? Um, understand something. Barsabbas, when you see bar in front of a name, it usually means like bar Jonah. That means the son of Jonah. Okay? Bar Joseph, the son of Joseph. So when you see this, Bar Sabbath, the son of the Sabbath. So somebody was named the Sabbath? No. No, it means that he was probably born on the Sabbath. Okay, so born of the Sabbath. So first of all, this guy was born on the Sabbath, so they called him that. He was also called Joseph. And then also, it's quite common in that time for Jews, because he was a Jew, but if they found themselves working in Gentile circles, he was probably a businessman. And you had to have a Gentile name. And Justice was a very, very popular Gentile name. So the guy wasn't like first, middle, and last name or anything. The guy just got called three different things at three different times. I mean, maybe you got a nickname too. I don't know. All right. So now let's talk a little bit about these guys. According to Eusebius, which Eusebius, not Eusebius, Eusebius, he was a, a historian. Not only that, he was a follower of Jesus himself, a believer. Now, he didn't get to follow Jesus specifically because he wasn't born until the end of the second century, beginning of the third century. But this guy was a disciple and he was also a historian. And a lot of what we know about from the early church that isn't recorded in scripture comes from his recording in history. And from what we see from this guy, this this Joseph Barsabbas Justice, he had quite a history. Just because, as we will see, he wasn't chosen, this guy remained steadfast, a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, and a powerful 
minister for the Lord. So, now the guy who was chosen, you got the other guy, Matthias here. And Matthias is also recorded by Eusebius as being one of the 70 that Jesus sent out in Luke 10. You see, Jesus, as I told you, he had more than 12 people following him. He had a whole bunch of people that followed him around really, really close. So, we got the two guys here, all right? We've got, we've got Joseph Barsabbas Justice, all right? We'll just call him Barsabbas. Let's just, just stick with that one. That will be easy, all right? So, we got Barsabbas, and we've got Matthias. Now, we've got to figure out who they're going to pick out. Verse 24. So, they prayed and said, You, Lord, know the hearts of all men. Show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. So we've got taking place at this meeting. Like I said, if you're going to have a meeting, you better have a purpose to this meeting. If you're going to keep everybody happy. The purpose, there was a purpose. To get somebody to take Judas's place. So they pick out two of the most worthy candidates that they can find. After they pick these two candidates, they pray. And after that, see the apostles have done all that they can do up to this point. This was not a rushed or a haphazard or aimless thing going on here. They put a lot of thought, they put a lot of prayer into it. So what they do next, they threw the dice. <laughs> I mean literally, that's, that's what we would call it in our day and age. You know, they went to the, I don't know, the craps table or whatever. I don't know, I don't do, an, I don't uh, I don't even know if that's the word I should have used for. I don't know. I don't go to the casinos or anything, but they rolled some dice, okay? They rolled some dice. Um, this is not a new practice, okay? It's interesting. If you look to the Old Testament, you'll find over 70 times in the Old Testament where they drew lots or cast lots. Probably the most famous time, some of you might remember this time, happened to a guy named Jonah who was told by God to go do something, go preach to some people that he hated, okay? And he didn't want to do it, so he ran the other direction, and he found out running from God is not the most smart thing to do, okay? And there's a big old storm that showed up, the ship was about to go down, so the sailors cast lots, and the short lot, whatever you want to call it, short straw, I don't know, it went to Jonah, and they looked at him and said, what did you do? <laughs> All right. Well, there are 70 other times that this took place. This also took place a number of times in the New Testament, right? This is, a, this is not a new practice. It's something that would take place. Matter of fact, Proverbs 16, from our Bible today, you know what it says? The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Okay, so the, the apostles, they, they put forth the two candidates. They prayed to God, and then they cast lots. They say, God, the rest is up to you. So they cast the lots, they rolled the dice, and Matthias was chosen. Now, I've got a question for you. About five years later, give or take a few months, about five years later, James, the brother of John, the two sons of thunder, sons of Zebedee, all right? Two of Jesus' most outspoken apostles. Two of the apostles along with Peter that was like the inner circle of the inner circle. And about five years into this church thing, okay, James, 
was murdered, he was killed by King Herod. He was, he was the, first, the first apostle who lost his life for his faith in Christ Jesus. Here's the question for you. Judas died, he was replaced. About five years later, James died. Why wasn't he replaced? I mean, it's a good question. Judas died, James died. Judas was replaced, James wasn't. What are we missing here? What we're missing is this. Judas was replaced not because he died, but because he turned away from Jesus. Matter of fact, the New American Standard says he, he turned aside and went to his own place. This is something we need to understand, brothers and sisters. For the follower of Jesus Christ, the faithful follower of Jesus Christ, death isn't the end. It's merely the finish line. And James, like the rest of his fellow disciples, excluding Judas finished faithful. Another thing we need to keep in mind is Jesus made it clear that there was a special role in the future for these 12 apostles. You can read all about it in Luke 22. You could also read about it in in the Gospel of Mark where, where Jesus says, you 12, remember there were 12 of these closest followers of Jesus, will sit on 12 thrones and you will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. So there is there is something special coming for these men. This is why Judas needed to be replaced in the first place. Who's going to fulfill that role on that throne if Judas turned aside and went the other way? James didn't turn aside. He was faithful to the end and he will sit in that throne one day. In judgment. You know, there's something else that probably more so should catch our attention, though. I told you over 70 times in the Old Testament, lots were cast. Six or seven times in the New Testament, we will read about lots being cast. But you know something interesting? This is the last time it happens. Isn't that something? There is not one more, one more New Testament example of casting lots after that day in the upper room. So what changed? They continued to pray. They continued to be unified. They continued to make decisions at times because decisions need to be made at times. But they never again cast lots. Why? I'll tell you why. The this is still the literal calm before the holy storm, okay? <laughs> and when we are at this point in the, in the book of Acts, we are still in the introduction before the hero appears. You know what I'm saying? Most time when you watch a superhero movie, it's a little while, like things either get really, really bleak or they just do something to like catch your attention. I don't know. And then usually you're about 15, 20 minutes, sometimes 45 minutes in movies that aren't very well done because by then I'm asleep. I mean, if the hero hasn't showed up by 45 minutes into the movie, I mean, it's, it's done. It's done. I'm done, okay? You got to have the hero show up quicker than that. So we're still in the introduction before the hero shows up, guys. We're looking at next week. And when it comes to the book of Acts, 
The hero isn't Jesus. Well, get me wrong, it's all about him. He's, he's always the hero. But Jesus had to leave so that the hero could come. He called him the helper. The helper is the Holy Spirit. As I told you last week as well, the book of Acts is, is kind of a shortened for, for, the, for the full title, Acts of the Apostles. But guys, that's not really the most accurate title. that It, it should be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And up to this point in time, the Holy Spirit has not shown up yet. The acts of the Holy Spirit have not yet begun in earnest. Now don't get me wrong, the Holy Spirit is there. God would not leave his faithful ones all alone. But as we'll see and we get into chapter 2 next week, wow, buckle your seatbelt. So, up to this point in time, the Holy Spirit is not yet dwelling within these people. And without the Holy Spirit, we've got them following instructions. They are, and they're doing what they're told to do. But what else are they not doing? There's no proclamation of the risen Christ. I don't see Peter, James, and John at this point going out and telling people, hey, he's alive. I don't, you, you killed him, but he's alive. No, they're, they're keeping quiet. They're timid. They're hiding, guys. Guys, let me tell you something. The upper room, I don't think it was built for 120 people. And yet you've got 120 people packed into this little upper room. Why? What are they going to do? They're not out preaching on the street corners. They're not doing it. As I said, they are following instructions, but they're timid. Everything would soon change, though, in a big way. A very big way. And guys, when we look at this, I have a question for us. Are we more faithful than these apostles? Just think about that for a moment. Are we more faithful than these apostles? If it were you, would you be in that upper room or do you think you'd be out on the street corners talking about Jesus? Here's another question. Maybe this will spell it out just a little bit better. Guys, the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon them. Here's my question. Can we do fill in the blank? Why don't you put that up for me, Zach, okay? Can we do, you fill in the blank there. Without the help of the Spirit. Because this, this is the thing, guys. We have the Spirit now. We're not waiting. As we will see in the next chapter, when someone comes to Jesus, they not only get the gift of forgiveness of their sins, which is an amazing gift. Purchased, it's not a free gift, because it was purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Now, it's free to us. It wasn't free to him. But that's not the only gift given. As we will see here in the next couple of weeks, when the people cried out to Peter and the rest of the apostles after that first gospel sermon's preached, what do we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ so that you might receive the forgiveness of sins and 
receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Folks, we have the Spirit. My question is this. Can we do fill in the blank without the help of the Spirit? If someone was to chronicle your life, if someone was to chronicle my life, could they subtitle that biography with this? The Acts of the Holy Spirit. Let me, let me ask you this question. How much listening do we do before we act? Just going to give you a little hint. As someone who has, has spent a pretty significant portion of their life in, in, a, in a ministry position. Okay? If you start planning big things without getting God and His Holy Spirit involved, you will set yourself up for failure. <laughs> you know how many times... In the past, I'm thankful it's in the past, and you, we should learn from the past, right, Melvin? All right, I say Melvin because Melvin's one of the one of the elders here, but Melvin could testify to this: the number of times in the past couple of decades that we've run with a plan and gone with it, thinks this is going to be awesome, this is going to be great, this is going to be wonderful, without praying about it much first. Every time, we think we got it all figured out. Because we're so sharp. We're so smart. We're not. What do we think we can do without the help of the Holy Spirit? Are we a church that is moved by the Holy Spirit? Well, we're not if we don't listen. Are we people of the Holy Spirit? We're not if we don't Listen, how often do we pray that the Spirit will work in us and through us on a daily basis? Did you pray that this week? Did you pray that when you got up in the morning? God, let your Spirit work in me and through me today. Have my ears open. Guys, do, you, do we realize this? God lives in us. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, cleansed by his blood, you have been put into a very unique position. You have God inside of you. Not because you're some great and wonderful person. There is no way he could reside in you without Jesus' sacrifice for you. It's Jesus who makes us worthy to house the Spirit of God. But if we've got this incredible power and insight within us, how often do we use it? How often do we act? And I'm not even talking about acting selfishly. I'm talking about things that we're trying to do well. We're trying to do them for God. But if we try to do these things without allowing him to speak to us through his spirit, 
we're setting ourselves up for failure. We've got that board back there called called, okay? How is God calling you to work in this world? Guys, that, everything about that happens through the Holy Spirit. How do we need to change our way of thinking? I hope there's some of us in this, some of you in this room that don't need to change any of it. I hope you have a connection to God through His Spirit and you are listening on a daily basis.